All right, well, you can turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4 again. Revelation 4, the title of our message this morning is After These Things, the Heavenly Vision. And that's exactly what we're getting uh, this morning as we move away from the messages to the to the seven churches and continue on in uh, the book of Revelation and we're preceding or proceeding, I guess, closer and closer to the, the kind of the main section of the book, if you will, that describes the tribulational period. But uh, it's important in the narrative here to see what's going on. We're, go- we're going to get to see the vision of heaven here and get a better understanding of why these things that are about to take place are actually happening. And that's that's important for us, just like it was important. We're going to kind of do an overview or a flyover of the things that we've seen here in the book of Revelation. But these these various chapters, like chapter one and the vision of Christ and this this scene in heaven uh, before uh, other things are described, are important because they are giving us the foundation uh, and the authority behind which the things we see being talked about are being talked about. So uh, we're moving on to the next major section in the book of Revelation, and this is actually the last one. So we've covered two, and we've only got one more to go. Uh, But as you can see, that's actually the overwhelming majority of the book. But first, we get to this scene in heaven. The things which will take place after these things are outlined for the book of Revelation, coming from chapter 1 and verse 19, uh, where Jesus Christ says to uh, the Apostle John, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after these things and it, and it begins with this scene in heaven so today after these things we'll see the chronology the call and the crowns we'll get an indication of uh we'll set the stage for why we are where we are in the book we'll see this call to heaven and then we'll take a look at these 24 elders and hopefully kind of come to some sort of conclusion about who these uh, who these individuals actually are, who these, uh, well, I'll give it away, who these people are that are being described there in these opening verses of chapter 4 with the chronology, the call, and the crowns. We begin with the chronology, because that's very much the The theme of the book of Revelation is that it is setting out chronologically events that are going to take place in the future. And when we look at the book as a whole or overall, we kind of uh, will see that it is uh, typology is being used here to really describe kind of the, the history of the world from the time of Christ until until the end, we'll see that uh, here shortly. Revelation 4.1 begins with that phrase, After these things I looked. Well, if you just jumped into the book of Revelation and you started reading at uh, chapter 4, uh, and it begins with this, well, after these things, well, after what things? So we'll take this opportunity since we haven't, uh, we didn't talk about Revelation last week, and we've kind of had a little break here, we'll take the opportunity to go over the things that we've seen in book of in the book of Revelation. After these things, well, after what things? Well, the book of Revelation begins with the vision of Christ. That's kind of the main, the vision of the risen Christ. That's the main point of Revelation chapter one. And it begins with that to tell us what the book is going to be about. For one thing, it, the book of Revelation is not about the Antichrist. It's not about uh, weird flying beasts that come out of 
the ground or it's not about people uh, dying in earthquakes and these kinds of things. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who is being revealed revealed here. His purpose, his power, and his plan for the world. And we saw in Revelation 1-3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Hopefully we got some things from chapters 2 and 3 that we could read, hear, and heed in our own personal lives. But here in, in verse 3 of chapter 1, we see that there is a, there is a great blessing for understanding this book. That's, that's important. For us to understand, and like we've talked about before, that one of the ways that this book blesses us is that we have to understand the Old Testament in in order to understand what's being talked about here in Revelation. And in fact, we really have to understand the entire Bible to understand uh, what is going on in the book of Revelation, not just the Old Testament, but we have to know who Jesus Christ is in order to understand, get it, have a better understanding of this book, of course. And, and we see that purpose of the book described in verses 4 through 8, primarily verses 7 and 8, because Jesus Christ is coming again to this earth, and this book is laying out the events that will lead up to him coming again and and bringing with it with him really uh, the consummation of this earth, God's entire purpose for uh, man and creating him is wrapped up in the kingdom that is to come in the future that is brought about through this incredible tribulation that we're about to get to in chapter six through 19 but he is coming again verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1 behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him so it is to be amen i am the alpha and the omega says the lord god who is and who was and who is to come the almighty that's the purpose of this book of revelation and we get the authority for the vision that is given to the Apostle John, we see that comes from the risen Christ. And he is described in pretty uh, vivid detail there in verses 9 through 20. We won't take the time to, to look through all of that again, but it's important for us to understand that the message isn't coming from just John. Uh, he says that he received this word from the Lord and he wrote it down on some gold tablets and then, oops, he lost the tablets and you'll just have to take his word for what he said. No, it comes from Jesus Christ. He wrote it down for us and we still have it today. Jesus is the authority behind this message that is all about revealing him. And then we moved into the things which are chapters 2 and 3, and the messages to the seven churches. This book of Revelation is really kind of like uh, an encicular letter, essentially, kind of like Ephesians was, if you remember that. It wasn't just written to the the 50 people or the 2,000 people, however many it was that made up the church in Ephesus. It was to be delivered around to the believers in the area. Well, Revelation is very similar to that, except that the Lord names these seven first-century churches that the letter was specifically going to go to. And we learned a lot of lessons in those, uh, in those messages to the churches. They're really like epistles. That's, that's a, the fancy word for a letter is an epistle. So they're a lot like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. They're just in miniature form coming directly from the Lord to the Apostle John, to these various churches, secondarily applications to us. Uh, they're not describing periods of time like we, like we talked about. Uh, that's, that's reading uh, a whole lot into the messages that, aren't, that isn't 
really there to think that the church in Ephesus describes the church from A.D. 40 to A.D. 150 or whatever, whatever the theory is. And, and uh, Scott, there's one reason that we don't need to accept that is that even the scholars who believe in that, that this historical prophetic view of chapters 2 and 3, uh, even those who advocate that position on these chapters don't agree on the time periods because there's nothing here that specifically objectively lays out what those time periods would be. You have to conjure it up in your own imagination, kind of, sadly. Uh, so this church in Ephesus, they were very doctrinally sound. However, they had left their first love. They weren't serving and loving others. And so they are reminded to repent about that, like all the churches are. Reminded to change their minds about the things that are, that are wrong in their church. Change their minds and then therefore change their actions in the things that the Lord points out to them where they are where they are falling short. And they're also like all of the churches, even the ones that don't get anything good said about them, they are promised a reward in the future because they are overcomers. That was very key in Reve- in chapters two and three, this idea of the overcomers that that uh blessings are promised to the overcomers. Who are the overcomers? Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ because he is the one who overcame the world on our behalf. So every time we see these blessings at the end of the messages to the overcomers, it's not the super spiritual Christians who are out there getting it done for the Lord. That is, that is the goal. That's why he's correcting them so that they will be better Christians, but the blessings are promised to believers in the Lord. And so the the next church, Smyrna, they were a reminder to walk by faith in persecution. There was nothing really bad said about them. Didn't mean that they were all perfect in Smyrna. But they were undergoing persecution, and so the Lord only saw fit to, to encourage them to continue to do that, uh, to walk faithfully. Pergamum, they were faithful in persecution also, but they were worldly in their walk. The believers in Thyatira, they had good works, but they tolerated immorality. In Sardis, well, they were believers, (laughs) but they weren't really much else. Uh, And that obviously was a problem for the Lord. And the church in Philadelphia, they can uh, expect a reward And that reward is the pre-tribulation rapture we saw, that they were going to be delivered uh, from the hour of testing that is about to come upon the whole world, not a a localized, he's not referring to a localized persecution there, uh, like what was going on in uh, Rome at that time by Domitian. As as horrible as that was, Rome wasn't, quote-unquote, the entire world. That is what is promised here to the church in Philadelphia. Uh, And then finally, last time we saw Laodicea, that they were indifferent believers, and they needed to remember the fact that they were saved by faith, that they walk by faith, and to remember the reward that awaits them and to be motivated by that as a cure, really, for their indifference. And then, what we're going to see, continuing our chronology, I'm going to try to get across the point that uh, as this, as a, a typological, in other words, looking at the book of Revelation as a type for history or uh, revealing history in some way, is that the next event on the chronology is going to be the rapture of the church, and that is alluded to here in the opening verses of chapter 4. We'll try to make that point. We are not, uh, this is not, would not be considered an allegorical interpretation of the Bible. We're looking at these things 
literally and understanding that, wow, when we get the, the literal, grammatical interpretation of these verses, we can see there seems to be a chronology of events being laid out for us because, after all, the Lord said, therefore, write the things which you have seen, past tense, the things which are, present tense, and the things which will take place after these things. Clearly, there's a chronological intent with the writing of the book of Revelation and the next event that we see taking place after discussing the churches is John being uh, miraculously taken to heaven. So we'll see that. We'll make the case here shortly that that is uh, revealing, in a way, kind of the rapture of the church. Well, we'll just we'll make that point now. I guess there is a there's the the book of Revelation uses the term church several times in the writing. We have seen it obviously in chapters two and three. Ecclesia is the Greek term. Church or churches is used about twenty times in these opening chapters, and we aren't going to see it again until we get to the very end of the book in chapter twenty-two. In verse 6, I believe it is, uh, this word church. And, and also that the book of Revelation here, we're going to take a dramatic turn away from the church, walking by faith, salvation through faith in Christ, and these kinds of, these kinds of things to very Israelitish uh, terms like 12 tribes, uh, 144,000 Jewish witnesses from the 12 tribes of Israel. That's not describing the Seventh-day Adventists or, or what are Jehovah's Witnesses, whoever it is that thinks they're the 144,000. That's ridiculous. Uh, they're coming from the 12 tribes of Israel. There's two witnesses who look very Jewish in the things that they do. Jerusalem becomes the focus of of this book and and on and on we could go and we will go to show that the church isn't being described in chapters 6 through 19 uh the world essentially is but the church was front and center before the events of the tribulation thomas constable agrees when he says in his uh, expository notes on the bible concerning revelation 4 2 There are 20 references to the church in chapters 1 and 3, but none until 22.17, chapter 22 and verse 17. This strongly implies that the church is not on earth during the tribulation. Evidently, the rapture takes place between chapters 3 and 4. The next event that we see in the book of Revelation, if you can see it on the screen, is the tribulation is described in detail in chapters 6 through 19. That that is the entire point of of that writing, is to describe the seven-year tribulational period that takes place before the millennial kingdom which is described in chapter beginning in chapter 20 and this is the this idea of the millennium or 1000 years uh, revelation chapter 20 is the place where you go in the bible to see that this kingdom of earth with jesus christ ruling and reigning over it upon the earth It will last for 1,000 years. This is the only place that you will find that time length described. It is given a lot of attention in the Old Testament that Israel is going to be the center of a worldwide kingdom with the son of David, who we now know as Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning from the earth over the entire world. Well, here in Revelation, we get more revelation that that is going to last that period of time is going to last for 1000 years and then we have the eternal state after the 
millennium upon the earth, then we have the eternal state in the new heavens and the new earth being described in Revelation chapters 21 through 22. So this book, this book of Revelation is in large part a book about the future. When we see it, when we understand it literally, grammatically, historically, it describes the future. That's why we consider ourselves to be futurists when it comes to the book of Revelation. This book is not describing the past. Uh, If it as preterism will hold, or a lot of people uh, under Reformed theology will believe that this book, the book of Revelation, is describing the past. That's called preterism. There's various degrees of preterists, uh, partial preterists, full preterists, three-quarters, one-third, medium well done, uh, these kinds of things. There's all kinds of uh, variations, but in large part, they see the book describing the past. That's that's simply not not so. These events haven't taken place yet. We'll see when we when we get there. It's also not an uh, another theory about the book of Revelation is that it's uh, idealistic, uh, idealism, an idealistic outlook on the book of Revelation. That it is just it's like Ecclesiastes. Uh, It's just describing the way things are, the cycles of life and these kinds of things. And I don't know about you personally, but I haven't seen 100-pound hailstones. I haven't seen an earthquake like no other that has taken place. I've never seen the Euphrates River dry up. I've never seen Jesus come to the earth uh, to destroy his enemies. This book isn't describing uh, the way things are, uh, the way things will always be. That's going to be a, an amillennial or no kingdom sort of outlook on the book of Revelation. And, and when we understand what's written here, it really can't be that. It is a book beginning in where we are right now, essentially describing future events from chapter 4 all the way to the end of the book. It's describing the future. And so here is a, a, a chart that shows the various dispensations. When we understand the book of Revelation, literally, we understand that God has changed the way that he operates with mankind. And, and we've gone over this before. We won't take the time to do it again. But right now, we find ourselves in this church dispensation after the law christ died to fulfill the law we now live uh, with the holy spirit indwelling us again we don't have to pray for him to come down and meet with us he's he's already here whether we whether we like it or not he lives inside of us as believers john 1 12 but as many as received him to them he gave the right to become the children of god even to those who believe in his name. That's where we are living right now. And that began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it will continue until Revelation chapter 4 and the rapture of the church essentially made in this church being made up of, of Jews and Gentiles who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And one day we we look forward to Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. We look forward to Jesus Christ to return in the clouds to catch us up, to meet him in the air and take us back to heaven, at which time, personally, I believe, very shortly after that, uh, I don't know how many days, weeks, maybe some months, I'm not going to, I wouldn't think it'll last much longer than that. Uh, We're going to kick off this seven-year tribulation period And then at the end of that, Christ will come again and establish his millennial kingdom upon the earth. This 1,000-year kingdom. Here's another uh, chart that we put up quite often that shows these these events. Living in the church age, the rapture, then the tribulation. Christ comes again, then the kingdom, then the great white throne judgment, then the eternal state. 
And here's another one. Can you tell that we talked about dispensations a lot last week? And so this, these got thrown in on uh, oh, yesterday on the way home from in the in the airplane. Uh, <laughs> that's, this is what happens when I have two weeks off. You get a lot of stuff. So here's here's a chart that we made that shows the the lengths of these dispensations. Like this one, you know, it's not to scale. You just kind of see all this information there, and you don't get, or even this one, even more so. You don't. You just see these blocks here. They're representative of time, and you don't really see, on the other hand, how long these uh, various dispensations are. So our timeline sort of goes this way here, and these lines are representative. These blocks are representative of years and how long these various dispensations actually ask. This one is probably quite exaggerated. It would be my guess would be pretty small before uh, Adam, uh, there we go again, Adam uh, sinned, ending innocence. And then there was conscience that began shortly uh, after that from the fall of man until the flood, 1,665 years, God gave people the opportunity to just believe in him. And then there was a period of government, period of promise, and then the time of the law came in, 1,479 years. The nation of Israel lived under the, under the law, and here we are in the dispensation of the church. One thousand, I'm not sure when I made this uh, chart. It's probably been a year or so, so we're, we're getting very close to 1,990 years of the church, God offering salvation to people by way of faith, faith alone, in Christ alone, so that they can avoid this seven-year period of time, so that they can be delivered from the hour of testing that is to come upon the earth. And notice that there's a plus sign here at the, at the end of the church. We don't know how long it's going to last. It could end at any time and then shortly thereafter this tribulation period is going to kick off and then there's a thousand years of of kingdom we're we're rapidly approaching double the time in the church age before the kingdom even begins and that is to show that god has always been gracious he wants people to trust in him he wants to give people time to trust in him there's a great period of of grace if you will some people mistakenly call this the age of grace or the dispensation of grace in the church like god was never gracious before he most certainly is gracious he gave people uh, 120 years after he first told noah to build the ark he gave people 120 years to repent change their mind and believe in the god of the universe he's given us coming up on 2,000 years to trust in him, uh, to have eternal life. Grace is obviously more fully revealed now since the person of Christ has, has come. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus reveals grace and truth. But God has always been and always will be gracious and long-suffering. Psalm 86 15 says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. David wrote that about a thousand years before Christ. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So there is our... our chronology being laid out church age rapture then tribulation then kingdom moving forward from where we are now next notice the call that we see in revelation 4 and verse 1 after these things i looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which i had heard remember john heard a voice uh, back in chapter 1, he's hearing that same voice, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after 
these things. Notice first that there is that uh, word behold, and that is actually a command, an imperative there, an aorist imperative, indicating to us that we need to pay attention to what is being said here. It is, it's a command with an expected completion, something that the Lord wants us to do, one of John specifically here to do but of course he wants us to do it also pay attention to this open door that is before you he says behold a door standing open in heaven there john is seeing this door that has already been opened for him now how in the world did that come to pass there is an open door. It's a, it is here a perfect participle, perfect tense, indicating that it has already been opened. It, uh, it is a perfect tense, a past tense action, a past action with ongoing consequences, the consequences of which are still uh, taking place. This door has already been opened. Well, I guess we could just breeze over it and say, well, yeah, the Lord opened the door to heaven and John went up there. But how, how did this door get opened? What past event opened this door and made it heaven available to people? Of course, that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that he has done all of the work for us. That's why salvation is by faith alone in christ alone it's not faith plus i've got to do some works be baptized go to church be the right religion whatever it is in order to get into this open door it's not oh i need to believe and then do all of these things to make sure i can still get into the open door no it is believe only trust in the finished, completed work of Christ. How do we know that it's completed? Jesus said so on the cross. Therefore, John 19, 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai, the Greek term. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Nobody killed Jesus. He gave up his own spirit, after he said, it is finished, to telestai, uh, the Greek term, that too is in the perfect tense, it is finished, that what he has, uh, was going to accomplish for our salvation is done, all of the work is completed in the crucifixion of Christ, him shedding his blood for our sins and then of course he would go into the grave showing that he had actually died he will rise again all three of these very important for our gospel presentation he would rise again showing that these things are true showing that he's god showing that he uh, really conquered all the consequences of sin we need to make sure we include all of those in our gospel presentation that that he not just that he well he rose again well why did he die Uh, he died for our sins that's a very critical part of the gospel also of course to in to include uh philippians 3 20 for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This uh, door has already been opened by the finished work of Christ and we, by way of faith in what he's done, trust in what he's done, believing in what he's done. All those words are synonymous. They all mean the same thing. Faith, believe, trust. We're not trusting in ourselves. We're trusting in what Christ did for us. That opens the door into heaven. And, and of course, faith being the only uh, condition 
for that. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death and into life. When Jesus introduced the idea of what we have come to call the rapture of the church or him coming again for us and taking us to heaven, uh, he laid out a single condition for that to happen. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust in him. And you can have the results of this. Verse 2 of John 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He is preparing that place behind this open door in heaven where John is about to be taken. Uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30 makes very clear that our justification, our sanctification, and our, well, our justification and our glorification are all based on faith. They are all accomplished by the God of the universe. And we are, uh, verse 30, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. That, it's, it's a completed work. That's why uh, Jesus here to John in chapters 2 and 3 can make these promises about the overcomers because we've trusted in Christ. We have these blessings in heaven to look forward to or these blessings for overcomers that we're actually going to experience those in the kingdom period. But that's all he can make that promise because we're already glorified as a result of our trusting in Christ. Notice that he says this voice is like a trumpet that he heard. The, uh, this, the first voice, which I had heard, he'd already heard this voice, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here. It is a voice like a trumpet, he says. John specifically says here, that is a simile. We saw, see a lot of uh, this kind of language, figurative language, in this chapter in particular, we're going to see a lot of it as we move into the rest of the book of Revelation. John comparing things that we're familiar with, with what is happening in the future so we can better understand what he's trying to describe. Uh, and again, in Verses 6 and 7, when he's describing these angelic creatures, uh, verse 7, the first creature was like a lion. That doesn't mean it was a lion. It was like a lion or similar to a lion. This is a uh, voice that he's sounding that is like a trumpet. And now in other very clear rapture passages, we also have trumpets being described. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 describes a trumpet that that is blown at the time of the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Man, I thought I had that one on my sheet, but I didn't. Uh, we need to read that. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 mentions a trumpet also. Where it says, now Paul's writing to the, to the very worldly Corinthians, reminding them of the promise of the rapture that they have to look forward to. He says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So clearly we're not living in the kingdom of God now since we're here in flesh and blood. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last 
trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. It almost seems like John is trying to remind us of the rapture of the church in mentioning the fact that this voice that is calling him up to heaven is like a trumpet. And notice that he is, uh, that the, the voice calls him, says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. Does that remind you of what we just read in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.50? It, it, it reminds me of, of that, that immediately he hears the voice, immediately he's in the Spirit and before God's throne in heaven. Again, 1 Corinthians 15.52, in a moment. Oh, moments, not even fast enough to describe it. In the twinkling of an eye, Paul says, we all will be instantaneously changed. And uh, meeting the Lord in the air and taken to heaven at the rapture of the church. Paul's experience that he had is very, very similar to John's experience. Notice what he says in that Paul had a, a very similar experience here. He says, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, he's speaking of himself here, such a man was caught up to the third heaven, And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Uh, Paul was caught up to heaven in a a moment and he was given uh, revelation there. John, the very same thing is happening to him. He is, in a, in a sense, raptured up to heaven, called up and caught up to heaven to see these things that are going to be revealed about the future. Revelation 22, 6, and he said to me, at, at obviously the conclusion of the book of Revelation, these words are faithful and true. These words that I have just given to you, the entire book of Revelation, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the, of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. That is what is happening here that we see John being caught up to heaven to have these things revealed to him. Notice the similarities between this and the rapture of the church. John is obviously a believer. He's taken to heaven supernaturally he hears a voice that is like a a trumpet Uh, he's taken there immediately Uh, it happens after these things christ and his church in my mind this is very much like the rapture that he's set setting out a chronology of events that are taking place in this book in this rapture of john taken to heaven to see the things which are going to take place in the future happens before those events are described that is uh, really kind of laying out a pre-tribulational rapture and now you know is john physically being taken to heaven to see these things i'm not sure paul wasn't sure when it happened to him, he wasn't sure whether is this a vision or am I actually here? This, it was so vivid, so lifelike that he wasn't sure. Com- a lot of commentators, when it comes to John's experience here, seem to be very sure that, oh no, his, his body was on Patmos, but he was in some sort of ecstatic, having some sort of ecstatic spiritual experience and he was just given this vision, but he's still right there on Patmos. And I'm kind of 
I'm sort of like Paul. And my natural mind is saying, well, that seems crazy that he would be taken to heaven. But at the same time, according to the language, he's, he's taken to heaven. And this, we see the same experience for, for Paul, and he's not sure. So I'm, I'm with Paul on this, uh, <laughs> uh, in spite of his warning about being with Paul or Apollos or Christ, these kinds of things. I'm, I'm with Paul on this. I'm not sure whether or not John is actually going to heaven or not. I lean towards, yeah, he was supernaturally taken there to see these things. Uh, John Walvard says, though there is no authority for connecting the rapture with, the, with this expression, what we're seeing here, there does seem to be a typical represent, representation of the order of events, namely the church age first, then the rapture, then the church in heaven. He says that in his commentary on the book of Revelation. I, I would... I, to give it the theological terms, I would say that this is a typological expression of the rapture. We're seeing a type of the rapture here. And next we see that it, that it, it will appear that in the vision that the church is already there in heaven when John gets there. And we see that uh, more evidence for this being a picture for the rapture of the church really that the church is already there in heaven uh, when this takes place because of these crowns and these individuals who are already there keep in mind we're not setting a date i'm not saying that the rapture is going to happen next week because uh joe biden is the antichrist i i i think we could probably all agree that joe biden is not the antichrist this guy uh, that we're going to see in Revelation 13, he enraptures the, pardon the pun, he enraptures the whole world with his wisdom and miracles, and these, uh, the whole world is kind of shaking their head at Joe Biden. Now, on the other hand, if he shows up next tomorrow and is like Einstein, or you know, he has the uh, oration of the Apostle Paul or something, and then that we might have to revisit that. But. Uh, in the meantime, we'll get back to Revelation 4 in uh, chapter 2 or verse 2, where John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Immediately he was in the Spirit. This is also kind of an indication to us that, that we're getting a new, there's a new section to the vision. Prophets do this quite often. We see uh, the first vision, of course, was of Christ and his messages to the church. If you remember back to chapter 1, he says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now again, he says that he's in the Spirit and taken to heaven to see these things. It's really the beginning of, of the next section. Uh, the prophets do this quite often. Ezekiel, his phrase was, the word of the Lord came to me when he would begin a new vision. Uh, uh, Daniel does the same kind of thing. You see that throughout the prophets. Um, yeah, let's go back to this. Notice that he was in the spirit. This is, uh, it's important to kind of look at the grammar a little bit. It's in the dative case uh, to get technical. So that means it was either in, by, or with the spirit that he was taken to heaven. I would kind of look at this as being a with the spirit that that the spirit miraculously takes him to heaven to give him this revelation this isn't something that that happens today this is something that happens specifically to the apostles uh, john is an apostle if you'll remember one of the 11 believing apostles who were literally with christ in his earthly ministry if you remember the upper room jesus promised that the holy spirit would come to you 11 and would reveal things to you 
specifically, you're going to be supernaturally through the work of the Holy Spirit, given remembrance of things that happened during my life so that you can write them down and they can become scripture. That's when the Bible says, uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy that all scripture is inspired by God. That's what's happening right here. Uh, John is being inspired. Literally, we're getting a, a picture of him being inspired by the Holy Spirit, given this vision to write it down for us. This isn't something uh, that is happening today. We can't be uh, get ourselves into some kind of spiritual trance and, oh, we're in the Spirit and taken to heaven. That was a, a miracle that happened in the time of John here on the island of Patmos. But next, the first thing that he sees is a throne standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And, and he's described with these, again, like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne that was like an emerald. So there's literally a rainbow there. There's Literally, someone sitting on the throne who is like uh, the, the most precious uh, stone that you can think of in his appearance. That's what's trying to be communicated here. And it's very similar. What John is seeing is very similar to what Isaiah saw in his vision of heaven. There's some, a lot of similarities. Ezekiel also saw heaven revealed to him. Very similar in appearance. Uh, Daniel uh, was able to see heaven and he said, Daniel 7, 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. We're going to see in the following verses, beginning in verse 5, that, well, that's kind of what John is seeing also. They're all seeing the same thing, the very throne of God. Notice, too, that there is a rainbow that is described there as being around the throne. Others who have, who have seen this throne have seen this rainbow also, and it is around the throne. We see from the earth anyway, we see rainbows. Uh, if you see the whole thing, it goes from one point on the horizon to the other point. If you're privileged enough to see one from the air and you're actually in the right place, you can see an entire circle of the rainbow. That's pretty cool. In about 30 years of flying, I've seen a lot of rainbows from the air, but only just a handful of occasions do you see the entire circle of the rainbow and it's pretty it's pretty special to be able to see that and here uh this rainbow is uh it practically brings me to tears when you think about the rainbow and what i just about guarantee that every person in this room has is not reminded of god's power god's sovereignty God's promise to never destroy this earth. Oh, by the way, the implication is that God could destroy the earth with a flood if he wanted to, but I'm not going to do that because I'm also gracious and long-suffering. He promised in Genesis 9 that that is what he's going to do, that that's what he would do, and he's going to set the rainbow in the sky so that every time you see a rainbow in the sky, you're reminded that I'm God that I'm sovereign over this earth, that I destroyed it once by a flood, but I won't do it again because I love you and I'm gracious to you. And it, it is to be a reminder of that. But it is also a demonstration of his incredible uh, glory. Ezekiel saw that. In Ezekiel 1.28, he also uh, uh, saw this rainbow so this rainbow again is a, a reminder of the power of god the so, that he is our sovereign creator a reminder that he loves us that he's gracious to us and of course rainbows are incredible they're they're incredibly glorious and they reveal the glory of god it re represents all of these things not some gross anti-god immorality that is attached to it today it is a it is representative of god and who he is in 
in all of his glory. And that's what John sees here surrounding, completely surrounding this throne. And it's like an emerald in appearance. It, it is shining and, and glorious. Not that it's only green. It's a rainbow, I'm convinced, that looks like the same uh, rainbow that we see demonstrating his glory. Uh, and then next, notice verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, who are these 24 elders? Uh, you go to the commentators, and there's some disagreement among them about what they are. Uh, uh, Robert Thomas, a wonderful commentary on Revelation. He thinks that these are, are angels. Uh, Tom Constable, again, great notes on the entire Bible. He comes down on, I think he comes down on mostly thinking they're angels, isn't sure. Could be men, could be angels. John Wolverd, on the other hand, he thinks that they are representative of the church. And I, and I would agree with, agree with him that they are they are people here in this vision that are representing the church, and there's a number number of reasons for that. Notice that they are on thrones, of course. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting. We, as believers in the church age, are promised uh, some measure of authority in the kingdom, Revelation 5.10, you have made them believers to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 and following describe how believers, people who have been faithful, faithful believers in their lifetime after uh, trusting in Christ, are promised a certain measure of of authority in the kingdom. So these uh, 24 beings, if you will, are on thrones. They also have white garments. Now, some commentators make the point that, oh, white garments are representative of the clothes that angels wear. Well, okay, but in the book of Revelation, white garments are always referring to the garments of believers and, and their righteous acts. We saw that in Revelation 3:18, the message to Laodicea. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. In other words, stop uh, Laodicean, stop being indifferent, stop walking around uh, uh, in disobedience to the Lord because you're like a person walking around naked as a believer living in disobedience to him. You need to put on the new man, the clothes of righteousness. We also see in Revelation 19.8, speaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, and it, the, the church, Revelation 19.8 is what's being described here. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And the fine for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Revelation 19.14, Jesus coming again to the earth says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses throughout the book of revelation those who are dressed in white garments are believers who are living in righteous acts and i think that's the same thing that is here these are believers who are in heaven clothed in white garments their righteous acts done in faith and notice also that they have crowns now this this description of the crowns they it doesn't get a lot of uh, uh, description here but we can certainly go to other places in the new testament that describe believers receiving some sort of crown the greek term being 
uh, Stephanos, that's uh, where the, the, the name Stephen is kind of comes from this same, this same Greek word, Stephanos or Stephanos. I'm not exactly sure what the pronunciation is, but nevertheless, it's not describing here. This, this term for crown does not, is not the same word that is used to describe a crown like a king wears in this case, but it's rather a wreath. Uh, that is descriptive of something that is received as means of reward like they received in the Olympics uh, back in this time period that the, the winner would have the uh, a wreath put on their heads as a sign that they won the particular competition. They received a reward. That's what we see here, this crown that they are wearing, the, the crown of Christ, the crown of thorns, was described using this same uh, Greek term, Stephanos, that these 24 elders have upon their heads. It is a crown of reward that is being described here. And the Apostle Paul describes three crowns in his various writings. He describes an imperishable crown in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and it is a a crown that is given for faithful endurance in the Christian life that it's uh, the King James or the King Jimmy as uh, Tommy Ice refers to it as uh, says that it's given to those who are uh, have been able to master the old man and this doesn't mean that they're able to take down their dad in a in an MMA fight or something it means that they were victorious they were faithful in the had faithful endurance in their Christian life. Next, he describes a crown of exaltation in 1 Thessalonians 2.19. This is also called the crown of rejoicing in other translations. Uh, Some have taken it to mean that it's a crown that is is awarded to people who are are gifted with evangelism uh, and these kinds of things because Paul is saying there in 1 Thessalonians that the Thessalonians are his crown of exaltation or his crown of righteousness, kind of a reward that he's going to receive for leading them to the Lord. There's also a crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8, a, a crown that is given to... Uh, depending upon the Lord and not ourselves. James, James chapter 1 and verse 12, he mentions a crown of life that is given to those who endure temptation. And finally, 1 Peter 5, 4, he mentions a crown of glory that is, that is awarded to pastors, essentially, who have been faithful, or teachers who have been faithful in teaching the word, and so, uh, like one of the one of the teachers mentioned this week, when it came to this uh, this topic, uh oh, was uh, brought up. I shouldn't have waved my hand over the screen for some reason. You know what happened, Nick? Let's try it again. Oh, that message doesn't look good. And unfortunately, I'd lost all my notes when I did that too. But at any rate, this uh, crown that is given to teachers is, yeah, uh, that's the one. Yeah. Nice. You're the man, Nick. Uh oh. Man, what a drag. The dramatic conclusion ruined (laughs) Um, yeah this crown that is given to teachers is promised to teachers at any rate who have been faithful the crown of glory first peter 5 4 uh you know when you get to heaven as a believer I think that this judgment seat of Christ is where people are going to receive these rewards. And then we'll notice later here in chapter 4 that we, you know, it's not like we're going to be walking around with our great crowns. We kind of give them back to the Lord, I think you can conclude here. But at any rate, this 
When you get to you get raptured, you get to heaven, and it's time for the judgment seat of Christ. You see a really long line uh, there. You you don't want to get in that line. It's probably the line for the teachers, not because there are a lot of teachers, but because, like James says, that judgment is going to be more strict. So it's going to take some time. And if you're if you're found to be faithful you will receive a crown of glory. So these 24 elders, uh, obviously they're in heaven, so they're righteous, so they must be, uh, well, we could narrow it down. They're either angels or they're believers, of course, people who have been declared righteous by God. But we see that they are given authority. They're on thrones. That's something that believers in Christ are promised. They're dressed in white garments, Throughout the book of Revelation, that's descriptive of believers who are living righteously. And they also have crowns upon their head that, with the Greek term Stephanos, indicating that they are uh, rewards for faithful living, living. So even though there may be a disagreement among scholars about who these are. I think that they're very clearly being described as believers. And they're already there in heaven. Uh, chronologically, as we're laying this out, they're already there before the tribulational events begin. So I think we can safely conclude that these 24 elders are, in fact, representative of the church. And that's all we have this morning after these things moving into this new section the chronology uh church age rapture then tribulation kingdom and eternity we have this call that paul that john received that he heard this call to enter into the door that's already been opened by the finished work of jesus christ he enters it by way of faith And we see these individuals who have crowns upon their head representative of the church in heaven before the tribulation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this ancient text of the book of Revelation that still uh, obviously has such incredible truths for us today. I pray that you would help us to remember these things as we go about our daily lives. We wouldn't just take them in as academic knowledge, but rather we would be transformed by them, that our minds would be renewed, and that we would more fully uh, show you to the world that we would bear the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, and uh, that people would see that. They would see our love for one another and the, the righteous acts that we do in your power, and it would draw people to you and to the salvation they can have by way of faith. I pray you'd give us opportunities in this week to come to walk by faith and primarily help us to remember to do that, to trust in you each moment of the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.